Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast. Thanks for listening. If you're joining uh, me here for the very first time, the purpose of this podcast is to provide listeners with real, practical, actionable advice to help you on your journey towards being a full stack engineer. If you're wondering what a full stack engineer is, that's a fair question to ask. I define a full stack engineer as someone who's capable of working across multiple silos and among multiple layers of the modern data center stack. Today, I have a very special guest joining me, and uh, that is Ivan Popelniak. Ivan, good uh, evening for you. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Thank you. I just enjoyed like almost six weeks of vacation with a few breaks in between. So yeah, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Thank you for asking. And man, that six weeks of vacation, you were spending a fair amount of time rock climbing, probably, I assume? Uh, unfortunately not. It was seaside, although we did squeeze some rock climbing into that vacation. And then it was a bit of mountain biking. And last week we were hiking with the kids. So yeah, cool. It all sounds all, fabulous. All outside. That's, that all sounds fabulous. I, I would love to go on vacation with you sometime. You have to move to Europe. Well, yeah, there would, there would be that. Or, or you could come visit me in Colorado. We have some fair hiking and stuff here. I know, I know. I have to drop by. <laughs> okay, great. It's on my bucket list. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, great. God, that sounds fabulous. So, um, Yvonne, I'm obviously very familiar with, with you and the work that you're doing, but uh, some of the listeners may not be. So why don't you take a moment and kind of just fill the listeners in on – of your background, your areas of expertise, the things that you're working on, that sort of thing. Uh, so how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> well, we have a fairly limited time in the podcast, so maybe don't go all the way back because I know you've been in the industry for quite a while, but you know, just a rough overview. Yeah, I started writing a few articles that are now on my website for people who really want to know the details. And I figured out that I started programming in early 80s. And did some crazy stuff even in those days with networking, like connecting machines over RS-232, if anyone remembers what that is. And we wrote our own networking stacks and crazy stuff like that. Then I was sysadmin for a while, and I was programming uh, point-of-sale applications, and I was writing an email client. And around early 90s, I focused primarily on networking, started working for a really small system integrator. I think I was employee number five when I joined. And we became Cisco and Cabletron resellers. And very closely after after that, uh, Cisco training partner, we were in the first batch of training partners in Europe. And they pushed me to be the instructor. Uh, we were also an ISP in those days, so we set up modem banks and people were dialing in and doing all that stuff, which uh, brought me in touch with the technologies that in those days weren't that familiar to everyone like TCP IP, for example. And obviously, the moment you start working on networking and you figure out how interesting that whole thing is, you're hooked for life. So from there on, it was more or less networking for me with uh, a little bit uh, going left and right into recently virtualization, a bit of storage, uh, cloud. And as you know, now the big hype is SDN and uh, automation has come to networking. So, yeah, interesting times. Yeah, you've got that right. Now, I, I, I'm obviously most familiar with, with your networking stuff. You've been doing that for a pretty fair amount of time. And um, listeners, if you're looking for a good you know source of, of networking information um ipspace.net i believe is the correct url is that right Yvonne? 
That's right. And uh, there's a website, there's a blog, there's a podcast, Software Gone Wild, where we talk about the uh, software-defined aspects. And that that's very rough definition. So it covers everything from uh, switching on x86 servers to optimizing TCP stacks to network automation to open source tools. Uh, you can get there from ipspace.net or you can go to podcast.ipspace.net and there's also content.ipspace.net where, which is full of free content for people who want to explore. Right, right. I, I, I am just often in amazement at the amount of content that you generate. So kudos to you for sharing uh, just a ton of very useful information via not only blog posts, but podcasts and presentations and recordings. It's just amazing. Well, that's my day job. You're doing a great job. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to be on the podcast. And let's start off just kind of, I'd love to get your thought before we delve into some of the the other discussions around the role of networking in in this bigger picture and and where people need to be in in that space. But, you know, the name of the podcast obviously is a full stack journey. And I think you mentioned you'd listen to a couple of the other podcasts and I appreciate that. And the idea here is that I believe that that we're being called away from being like single silo specialists and we're kind of being forced into having to straddle multiple silos. Now, a lot of people complain that say, you know, you're never going to be able to develop sort of deep expertise in all these areas. And, and, and I agree with that. I think you're going to end up with really deep expertise in, in one, maybe two areas, and you're going to have a reasonable depth in a lot of these others, but you're also going to be able to kind of take that really broad look and, and be able to kind of understand how all these things play together. And that's, that's really kind of my idea of a full stack engineer in the last uh, couple of episodes, we've been focusing on specific technology areas. And obviously, with your um, considerable expertise in networking, that'll be kind of what we're talking about here. But I'm just curious to know, kind of what's your idea of this, this, you know, thing of, of being a full stack engineer? Is it, is it completely unattainable? Um, and if so, you know, is it still worth pursuing or, or not? I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay, I could give you the pitch about the uh, T-shaped skills and the I-shaped skills and the pie-shaped skills, right? Sure. Uh, let, let's not go down that bullshit. Although there is some value there. Um, so when I started, there were no silos. You had to know a little bit of everything or you wouldn't get anywhere. And then obviously as things became more complex, uh, people started to specialize because as you said, you can't be, well, you can be jack of all trades, but then we know how well that ends. You know nothing about everything. Or you can be a very specialized person and you know everything about nothing. Or you can be somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Uh, for me, it's important that A, you understand what people left and right of you are talking about and you have to be able to communicate with them, which means that for a networking person, you have to understand how servers work. You have to understand how virtualization works. You have to understand what storage is. You have to understand why storage is different from uh, TCP IP, for example, or from regular networking. Uh, obviously, you won't be an expert in all those areas. That's uh, ridiculous because even being an expert in networking is hard these days. But you have to know enough to understand when this other person is talking about his problems. 
and vice versa. If I'm approaching a networking engineer, well, he, maybe he, sorry, a server admin, maybe he should understand a bit about networking or maybe it's my job to explain it to him, whatever. And it goes all the way up to the application people because if they would know a little bit more about networking, then maybe we wouldn't talk about things like vMotion. Maybe they would start using DNS. Just saying. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, and uh, just to illustrate this with a story, when I was studying at university, we had this mandatory half-year thingy, which was Economics 101. And we were in computer science degree, and we were like, what the... Uh? And uh, the professor really made a great intro. He said, you know what? All of you will be managers in 15 to 20 years. And what I want to give you is the basics so that when an accountant starts pulling wool over your eyes, you'll realize what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And that's the minimum you have to be able to do as a specialist in one area. You have to be able to understand what these other people are saying. Right. So I guess in, in your opinion then, I mean, pursuing this sort of idea of being, you know, the quote unquote full stack engineer it, it's it's valuable because at the very least you're you're getting enough knowledge to be able to understand what these these peers are talking about. So when you go talk to the networking uh, the team, if you're not a networking professional, then you kind of have an idea of the challenges they're facing and the technologies they have to deal with. Or if you are a networking professional and you're going and talking to the application team or the storage team or you know the virtualization server team, whatever the case may be, you have enough uh, knowledge to be able to at least understand kind of where they're coming from and what challenges you know they may be facing and how they need to interact with with what you're responsible for doing. Yeah, exactly. And just to make this more uh, concrete, for example, if you're working in a data center and you're a networking engineer, you better understand how uh, VMware's virtual switch works because that's what you'll see in every enterprise data center. And on the other hand, if you're a server admin, you better understand how ping works and what ARP is and how to take traces with uh, TCP dump or Wireshark and how to test whether your connection is going through so that you don't open a ticket saying the network is broken if in reality your IP address is wrong, for example. Sure, absolutely. That's perfectly fair. So I, I think I think we both agree that kind of, you know, even even if the goal of being this, you know, mythical full stack engineer may be unattainable. The, the, um, the value that you derive from pursuing that goal and being able to broaden your understanding and being able to talk intelligently and effectively with others with whom you're required to, you know, to, to work because that's how, you know, that's how we are. That's how business gets done. Um, it's, it sounds like, you know, there's, there's definitely value in pursuing it, even if we may not, you know, end up ever reaching that goal because it's, it's a, it's a continuous journey. It's sort of like, you know, continuous delivery, continuous deployment kind of thing. Um, if that's the case, then I, I'd love to hear you kind of talk for a bit, you know, especially from, from, from two perspectives. First, from the perspective of, of a network engineer. If, if, if I'm a listener and I'm listening to this podcast, I probably already know who you are because you're, you're, you're pretty well known in the networking space. You have yourself, um, kind of modeled needing to kind of look at these adjacent areas, you know, storage and virtualization and servers, that sort of thing. Where should a sort of, you know, quote unquote, hardcore network engineer, where should they start? Where are they going to get the most bang for the buck? If they say, you know, they're listening to this and, and we say, look, you need to pursue some additional knowledge outside of your silo 
where would, where should they start? What would, what would give them the most kind of return for their effort? Uh, well, you know the answer. It's, it depends. <laughs> okay. Now, it really depends on uh, whether you're working in data center environment or in campus networks or uh, you're a WAN engineer. The basic idea should be the same. Uh, you have to get out of your comfort zone. Or as they say, if you're the smartest person in the room, it's time to change the room. Uh, because you won't learn anything new if you stay within your comfort zone. On the other hand, if you start uh, studying, I don't know, particle physics, obviously you will have a very hard time and a very steep learning curve. So you have to find something which is pretty close to what you're doing so that you have this easy time understanding the basics and getting proficient so that you don't lose the momentum. And, uh, but it has to be far out of your comfort zone so that uh, you learn something new on the way. And it has to be hard. If it's not hard, then you will not learn much. Uh, so if you're in data center, that would probably be uh, virtualization, uh, virtual switching. Mm, if you are a WAN engineer and you're not yet working with VPN technologies, it's time to focus on that. If you're a campus engineer and you don't yet know how Wi-Fi works, uh, that's uh, where you should focus. And on the other hand, I think that everyone should at least try to understand how applications work and uh, what's behind the scenes of a distributed application. Because if nothing else, when someone comes along saying the network is the problem, at least you'll be you'll know where to start troubleshooting. I, I can give you a great example. Uh, I was talking with a great networking engineer uh, working for a regional company, and the mothership decided to consolidate everything in the central cloud. So they did that, and. Uh, as expected, uh, response time went from milliseconds to seconds. And you know what the usual diagnosis is, right? It's a network problem. Of course. Uh, and the poor networking guy uh, spent weeks proving it's not the network. So mean time to innocence was measured in weeks. He was doing file transfers. He was doing... Uh, he was measuring the quality of the link. He was measuring the packet drops. The network was perfect. And still the application response times were what they were. And finally, someone figured out that what really happened was that they moved the Oracle database together with the applications. Great job. But they left the user table in place because they couldn't move the user table. This was Europe, uh, personal data protection, yada, yada, yada. So for every single transaction that the application did in this other country, it would query the user table that was still sitting in the old place and the latency was a few milliseconds. So just based on this, you can figure out how many transactions a typical application did before it gave a response to the user. Right. But it took them weeks to figure out what the problem is. Because yeah. the application people or database people had no clue about networking. And the networking team never considered doing a packet capture to see what exactly is going on. 
Right, right. And had either of those teams spent some time with the other and, and kind of got to know what tools they were using, what challenges they were looking at, then they might have been able to come to that resolution more quickly rather than, you know, taking weeks of time to figure out you know, what was slowing down the application. Exactly. Let's, let's narrow the discussion just for the sake of, of, of the listeners. Cause you know, I'm, I'm really particular about making sure that we give the listeners something very practical that they can, can step away from. So let, let's lay on the discussion down. Let's say that, you know, we want to focus on, uh, network engineers who are working in the data center and, um, we're recommending to them that they need to step outside and, and you mentioned, you know, virtual switching and, and virtualization. So, you know, in your mind, uh, where would be a good place for them to start? Should they start with vSphere, given that it's got a you know fairly significant footprint in the data center? Should they start with the open source KVM Open vSwitch stuff? Um, you know what would make the most sense? And and obviously, I know the answer is going to say it depends because it does depend upon their particular environment. But in general, you know, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, yes, it depends on whether they work for a cloud services provider or an enterprise. And uh, do keep in mind that even some cloud services providers are running on vSphere and even the big cloud providers have their enterprise department that is responsible for salaries. So enterprise is everywhere. Uh, and uh, if you're working in some sort of enterprise environment, I would strongly recommend vSphere. Or maybe if you're a pure Microsoft shop, uh, go with Hyper-V. For a very simple reason, those products are mature. Right. Documentation is great. You install it, it works. You click a few things, they work the way the documentation describes them, which is not exactly the impression I got from certain open source products. What? You mean open source products may have some 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 flaws, some glitches? Surely you jest. Oh, no. <laughs> and documentation is picture perfect, right? Every single time. Every okay. single time. And, and by the way, just for listeners, in case you're an open source advocate, um, I, I don't know about Yvonne, but I know that I certainly make contributions from a documentation perspective to open source projects. So I, I'm, I'm entitled to be able to make those kinds of jokes. Um, uh, well, I just opened three <laughs> issues on Ansible in the last two days. So, yeah. Okay, fair enough then. So Yvonne is, is uh, prepared to uh, – qualified to be able to make those kinds of jokes as well. Um, okay, so that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, you know, vSphere and Hyper-V obviously are going to have, you know, big footprints in, in, in as you put it, enterprise-y data centers. Um, depending on whether you're, you know, you're a pure Microsoft shop, you may be running Hyper-V. Otherwise, you may be running vSphere. That's a good place to start. Um, so then once well uh, one one other thing uh, always start playing with what your peers are using mm-hmm. so if they're running on uh, vSphere download uh, the evaluation version of ESXi or or uh, even VMware workstation and start playing with it if they're microsoft shop go with hyper-v the same thing with network automation if your server people are using puppet focus on puppet if they're using ansible use Ansible. If they're a chef shop, go with chef. What a simple reason. Whenever you get stuck, you buy someone a beer, you get the answers you need. Right, right. Yeah, we had a previous guest talk about uh, and also kind of say the same thing in that there's a lot of synergy to be gained when you align your efforts with what else is going on in your environment. So basically saying the same thing, you know, look, he went out and he tried to learn 
I don't even remember what it was, Python, I think it was, and it didn't make any sense. And so when he switched to Ansible, because that's what the rest of the team was using, it, it made a lot more sense. So that's an interesting point, um, Yvonne, in terms of, uh, you know, there, there's kind of two things that, that you mentioned in that, in that statement that was you were talking about, hey, you know, go download the evaluation version of vSphere or Hyper-V or whatever, use what your peers are using. And then you also mentioned network automation. So I'm curious, which of those two would offer kind of more, well, I guess let me step back. Do you see those as being, uh, you know, I need to focus on one, not the other, or, or are they complementary? And if they are choosing one versus the other as, as kind of the first place for somebody to start to broaden their horizons, should they start with virtualization or should they focus on building their automation skills with the core networking stuff that they're already doing? Oh, uh, you should build your automation skills no matter what. Okay. Uh, and but, but but you still have to get out of your comfort zone, which means yeah, go with virtualization as well. Right. Well, but, I, mean, I would I, I would dare say that there's probably and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, in in talking with with a number of folks out there, I think there's a probably a fairly large group of networking professionals who haven't even embraced automation within the networking space yet. Uh, yeah, you would be amazed. Uh, amazed that there are that many people or amazed at no no no, no. Uh, amazed at how bad things are <laughs> okay all right all right <laughs> or maybe not uh, yeah the problem is that uh, as you know if you blow up a core switch you bring down your whole data center so people are obviously nervous about uh, deploying automation particular network automation in brownfield environment Sure. On the other hand, once you start working with that stuff, you're totally hooked. Right. So let's let's park there for just a minute because I think this is really important in in my mind. And, and feel free to disagree, Yvonne, if you want. But if I'm a if I'm a you know a hardcore diehard networking professional and I haven't embraced automation, it seems to me that the first thing I should do, even though it's still networking focused, is is begin to look at some of these automation tools again aligned with whatever my peers are using. So whether it be Puppet or Chef or Salt or Ansible or, you know, whatever the case may be, um, that in itself, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to pull some people out of their comfort zone because you're talking about languages and, and constructs and, and syntaxes that they aren't necessarily familiar with. And then the concepts of using them because you're going to bring along the ideas of, you know, source code control and, and version control and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, along with them. And then maybe you're going to be looking at CICD or maybe not, you know, it just kind of depends, right? Uh, even before that, uh, so there are two things that you can immediately do. And I always tell people to go for the lowest hanging fruit, obviously. Uh, and it would be either generating configurations from scratch so that you don't do copy-paste. And the other thing would be something simple like configuring VLANs with Puppet. But in both cases, the first thing you have to do is you have to realize what you're doing. And that's what's missing with many networking engineers. They don't have what, the, what academics call computational thinking. Hmm. They don't okay. think about what exactly are the steps I have to take to get to the result. Or uh, to simplify it, imagine you have to explain your troubleshooting procedure to the absolute idiot. And when you get to the absolute, absolute idiot, you're ready for automation. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the other thing along those same lines that most networking people, I don't think, have started to think about are the data models. 
So how do you describe the state of, let's say, your router running BGP over DMVPN? What is the minimum amount of information you need to describe what you're doing? Uh, and how would you take that minimum amount of information and transform that into the 300 lines of configuration that you have to push to the router to get the router to do that? Right, right. So this abstraction of 300 lines of configuration, which is what we work with today, into a simple data model with maybe 20 variables. That's the interesting first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and um, yeah, I had a, a guest on earlier, uh, Matt Oswalt, um, who, who kind of shared the same thing that he said he found. He, he was an interesting case in that he... He started out in, in software development, then moved over to networking, and now has moved into a role that kind of sp- focuses on development for networking. But he said that he found that the time he spent in, in the development space developing that sort of computational thinking, that sort of you know thinking like a programmer of what are the steps that I need to take and how do I encapsulate the data that needs to be involved here were very helpful. And so it certainly sounds like you know, boiling this down to something for the listeners that if you're a hardcore network engineer and you're not doing network automation, sort of the first step for you is, is, is going down that, that path. And, and the challenges you're going to face are going to be, you know, changing how you think, being able to break it down into the steps that it takes to get from point A to point B and thinking about the data models. How do I take the data that's required to get from step point A to point B, wrap that up appropriately as a set of variables or constants or, you know, whatever the case may be so that I can then look at a specific, and that's all even before we start talking about specific technologies. So before you ever even get into a puppet or a shaft or an, an Ansible or anything else of that nature, you need to kind of get those things down. And then you can move in and apply a specific technology using those those sort of thought processes and techniques to to begin to do that. But you should be doing that before you even before you even move outside of the networking space to look at virtualization or or, or whatever else. Perfect summary. Good, good, good. So, so shifting gears just a little bit now, I, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of let's approach that same question as in, you know, okay, we, we, we agree that we need to broaden our knowledge. We need to begin to move into these adjacent areas. Um, you've given a, a great sort of summary for what a networking person should do, right? But now as a networking professional, as a networking expert, if, if I may call you that, some people get offended if I call them an expert, but um, talking to non-networking experts, where should they start? Like what's, you know, aside from the kind of the basics, which you mentioned earlier, you know, how to use ping and how to use ARP, right? Where should a non-networking professional? So if I'm a, if I'm a listener to the podcast and I'm a hardcore vSphere guy or gal, right? Um, and, and, and I agree and I listen to this and I say, yeah, you know, you're right. I need to, I need to know about my networking. Where should they start? Honestly, I have no clue. Okay, that's fair. Uh, um, so I can tell you what uh, some friends of mine are doing with uh, students that they grab straight off university. Mm-hmm. And computer science degrees in U.S. are probably as bad as they are in Europe. In four years, you get like half a year of networking. So they know nothing. They know all about Python and uh, Ruby and artificial intelligence and who knows what else, but they maybe know the OSI model. Uh, they send them through the Cisco CCNA course. Okay. 
it is Cisco specific, which doesn't hurt because they still have some market share. Uh, but the course does cover the basics. So it covers the basics of uh, Ethernet, it covers the basics of OSI model, it covers the basics of TCP IP. Uh, I'm positive there are similar resources for networking on Linux. I'm just not familiar with them because I was, in the days when I was beginning, I was a Cisco guy. Uh, I collected a few books that uh, people should read if they're interested in networking. I think that I should start with Tannenbaum, the computer networks. First edition was 1981. Hmm. Fifth edition is 2010, so he is upgrading his books. Then in my days, we had TCP IP Illustrated from Richard Stevens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he has three books. I only read the first one on the protocols. The second one is, I think, on the uh, socket library, and the third one is whatever. Uh, and then there's Jeff Doyle's uh, Routing TCP IP and uh, Volume 1 and 2, and now he wrote a book on software-defined networking. So that would also be interesting. But Jeff is focused more... I think. Uh, so Tannenbaum is generic computer networks. TCP IP Illustrated is for people who know nothing about TCP IP and want to get, flu- get fluent. And then the third step would be Jeff Doyle's books. Okay. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good practical first step. I mean, if you're, if you're a server um, guy or gal, um, or maybe you're an application um, focused uh, guy or gal, and you say, "Hey, I need more networking knowledge." I mean, I think it's reasonable to say, hey, "Let's start with generic networking technologies." You could probably, you know, maybe spend a little less time on some of the physical uh, stuff that doesn't, you know, play in so much anymore. A lot of the stuff that I read, I'm sure you as well, you know, back in the day, had to spend time on token ring and all these other things that now have fallen off and i think the world has kind of converged on ethernet at least within the data center um uh, well you would be surprised because you know you you remember sdlc and polling right uh what do you think happens on wireless or gpon i yeah, i don't know <laughs> <laughs> well you have the same problem you have shared medium and the uh, clients can't hear each other so somehow you have to allocate time between clients. Right, right. And the head end is doing that. And it's the same problem that we had in SDLC days and it's cable modems today or GPON or wireless or 3G, 4G. All of that stuff is solving the same problem and they're using more or less the same technologies. I mean, right. not the same technology, but the same principles. Yeah, same principles. Uh, which brings me to another recommendation. Always ask why. So you're reading about OSPF and you're reading about areas. And some people just go like, yeah, this is OSPF, these are areas, this is summarization. What if you people ask themselves, why do I need areas? What problem are they trying to solve or were they trying to solve? Does it still apply today? Does it still make sense to design OSPF the same way today? And most people can't answer this question, even the networking engineers, because they never focused on what exactly is the problem with, let's say, OSPF areas. 
Or another example, why do you need ARP? Just ask a networking engineer how ARP works and why you need them. And sometimes you would be surprised. Okay. So al- right. always focus on why are we doing things the way we are doing things? And always try to, you know, build the mantle big picture. Mm-hmm. Because if you're just, I, I read a great book and obviously I forgot the title. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of those books telling the presenters how to make better presentations. And it went along the lines, you know, imagine that your brain is a closet. Either you have a number of nice shelves in there and then you put every item on the right shelf. And when you need it, you know where to pull it out because you're organized. Or it's like one big box and you just throw everything in. And guess what? When you need something, you won't find it. So always try to build this mental picture of how things work together, build the mental model of why we need certain things, and then you'll see how they fit together. And after a few years of doing that, you'll discover the rule 11 of RSC 1925, which says that uh, the old things are reinvented in new clothes every few years. Right. I mean, your, your recommendation echoes some stuff that I've heard from, from others as well as other guests. And that is, you know, it's, it's fine to, to learn something kind of, you know, the vendor specific way, but you, at some point you really want to focus on the fundamentals, uh, and, and the why, you know, you're, you're doing something this way, not just the, you know, this is how something is done, but the why you would do something, why you might deploy it a certain way or why you might use one protocol over another. Um, and, and by focusing on fundamentals and focusing on the why, you begin to be able to, to, as you said, kind of build this mental picture of how things fit together and what becomes the right tool for a particular job rather than, you know, everything looks like a nail and all you have is a hammer. Yeah, which opens up another huge can of worms. So, yeah. Learn as many tools as you can because then you have a fighting chance of selecting the right tool for the job. So with that, with that thought in mind, and again, I know this is, you know, this is, let, let's narrow the discussion down because I suspect that most of the listeners are probably data center focused. Um, that's kind of been where I've spent a lot of my time. So I think a lot of the listeners who end up at this podcast are probably going to be there as well. So for a data center environment, you know, it sounds like, and 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 uh, I want to boil this down again to some some very practical stuff that the listeners can can get out of it. It sounds like okay, you're you're in the data center. You're maybe you're a server admin, maybe you're an applications person, whatever. You, you say I want to learn more networking. It sounds like they need to start with some some basics of the networking. You know, kind of networks in general, right? Um, then spend some time with with TCP/IP because that appears to be sort of you know where where everybody is, um, and then. Uh, begin to add on top of that with with some you know routing stuff whether you use Jeff Doyle's book or, or others um, from from a routing perspective you know uh, OSPF BGP should they do both should they start with one not the other I mean there's a lot of uh, attention if you will being spent these days about BGP in the data center so is that where they should start or should they you know go ahead and go with an IGP like OSPF first uh, uh, I would push them in totally different direction. Oh, okay. They should understand the physical limitations of networking, like bandwidth and delay. Okay. 
and then try to emulate that on uh, their systems, which is pretty simple. If you use Linux, you just uh, tweak TC and you can get uh, packet drops and delay and uh, limited bandwidth, so traffic shaping. Mm-hmm. And then see how your applications work in this limited environment. And then start asking yourself, why are they so slow? And then you okay. take packet traces and you figure out what your application is really doing. And uh, that will give you a head start because at least you will be able to tell the application people that, uh, you know, they should uh, use, for example, SQL joins because if you don't use joins but you do so many SQL queries, then mm, maybe the latency to the database is important. Or if you're an application person and you see what's going on behind the scenes and you see how badly things behave when you start introducing bandwidth and latency limitations, uh, you will become a better programmer because you will understand why that's a bad idea. And uh, one more book uh, from Ilya Grigory or something like that. The guy is working for Google, and he wrote this great book about uh, speeding up browser uh, networking. Let me try to find it. Uh, High-performance browser networking. Got it. Okay. He goes into how TCP works, how HTTP works, uh, how you download resources from the web server to the browser, and... uh, all sorts of tricks that you can use to speed up the actual real-life application. So his goal was to get the screen to a mobile user within one second. Mm-hmm. So you click on a link, you're on a reasonably slow-speed mobile network with uh, hundreds of milliseconds of latency. You want to get the response in one second. Can it be done? That was his question. And he made a book out of that. So it sounds like really rather than focusing on the mechanics, you know, routing protocols, all that kind of jazz, it might be more appropriate for folks in the data center, whether they be, you know, server slash operating system centric or whether they be application centric to really start at understanding better how the network affects the behavior of these upper layers by introducing latency or or bandwidth limitations or something of that nature and then observing the effects up there so that they can describe that or understand the impact better rather than spending some time kind of down on the the internals at least at first is that is that accurate absolutely and the okay. second area they should explore is how do you build resilient applications mm-hmm So how do you build an application that doesn't require a load balancer? And you know the answer. You use console. Right. Uh, A lot of application people don't know that. Or even if you have to use load balancer, uh, how do you configure PHP or Tomcat or what have you so that you don't need uh, session cookies on the load balancer? Because if you can do simpler load balancing, then you can throw out the uh, high-end boxes from established vendors. You can start using some, something simple like uh, maybe Nginx or HAProxy. But today you can't do that because uh, your user has to land on the specific server instance because you are storing the session data on files on disk. 
And a lot of application people have no idea that that's going on and why that's a problem. And then they're complaining that we have to buy these hugely expensive load balancers from you know who. <laughs> right, right. And it's all or, or largely due to application architecture choices that they've made that are having to drive these these other sort of decisions. And if they had a better idea of how their application decisions affect the other areas or how the other areas affect their application decisions, they could begin to optimize that in a bigger picture context. And you know what's the sad part about that? Sometimes it's as simple as a single line in php.ini. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's good to know. It's good to know. Okay. Very good. Very good. That's, that's very, very useful information. Thank you. Um, so I want to begin to wrap up here. I don't want the show to run too long. So, um, just as a as a kind of a, a final wrap up, I mean, you've had a, a you know a very long, very successful career. You've obviously spent a lot of time not just in networking, but also in a lot of these adjacent areas. And and it, you know, it's obvious in, in how you talk about sort of the relationships between these pieces and 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 all this sort of thing. Any sort of you know, um, I guess for lack of a better term, tips or tricks maybe you could share from kind of your own journey over the years that you found useful, like I found it useful to do this or I found it useful to do that or, you know, whatever the case may be that have, have, have been successful for you? Become a presenter. Okay, why? The best way to learn something is to have to explain it to others. Because okay. A, you want to make sure that you know what you're talking about you don't want to look like an idiot on the stage. So obviously you will go into all the nooks uh, of this topic and explore all the crazy options so that you are prepared for all the questions you might get. Second, uh, if you have to explain something to other people, then you have to organize your mental model first. So it forces you to organize uh, how you think about something. And the third thing, if you have to explain something complex to people who have no background, no fundamentals, you're forced to simplify things down or they won't understand you, which also helps you get the bigger picture and understanding how, uh, for example, things fit together. And finally, you wouldn't believe how much I learned by uh, teaching people about uh, computer networking. The questions you get are pure gold. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that's great advice, and I personally agree. I spent a, a fair amount of time myself in my career as, a, as an instructor and, and know that that sort of – before you get up to talk to somebody about something, you're going to make sure that you know what you're talking about. So, as you put it, you don't end up looking like an idiot. However, the opportunities to be a presenter can be fairly limited. So would you, would you say that activities like blogging or creating instructional videos or anything of that nature, do they have at least some of the same benefits? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, definitely blogging. Uh, instructional videos take a lot of time. Okay. So uh, maybe that should be the second step. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be disappointed. You invested this much time in this video, and then you get five views. Right, right. But but and I guess the I guess the point though would be that the creation of this of this material would be more for your own benefit than necessarily for everyone else's. I mean, in other words, just the process of going through and creating a blog post, 
I know it does for me, just the process of creating a blog post, even if nobody ever reads it, it helps cement the, the, the mental model, how these things fit in the bigger picture for, for me. So the fact that others may or may not benefit is kind of a, you know, it's a plus, right? Um, yeah. I guess the same might be for, you know, say creating some YouTube videos of whiteboarding something. It doesn't have to be sort of a formal, you know, big production thing. But even if you were just to organize your thoughts around an outline and say, I'm going to create this whiteboard video and I'm going to post it to YouTube, even that, even if it doesn't get a thousand views or whatever number, the very fact that you went through that also helps you. Yeah, but do keep in mind that we are uh, social animals. Sure. So explaining something to 10 people and seeing them get it has its own rewards. Of course. Of course. And uh, as for it's hard to get uh, presentation opportunities, uh, you can start talking to the application people in your company. Okay. So do like a, you know, brown bag type lunch. Exactly. Know, yeah. Okay. All right. That's good. Yeah. Idea. Just, just, just pull together a few people that are open minded and uh, organize lunches and just whiteboard. Yeah, it doesn't have to be slides. That's true. Yeah. No, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. And a great way to kind of break down the walls. We've had a number of presenters talk about how, how important it is to establish relationships with, with these other groups within your organization. Um, so this is kind of a, you know, two birds in one, you know, fell swoop sort of thing in that you're, you're gaining some knowledge, you're gaining some experience, some confidence from presenting. You're also sharing that with other people. So you're helping them and you're building relationships between that group and, and yourself or your group that may prove beneficial later on. And by the way, speaking about confidence, do go to a presentation skills course. Okay. Is there a particular one you recommend or just any? Any. Okay. I mean, I was pushed through that when I wanted to become a Cisco instructor because in those days, uh, Cisco took care of that. And it was probably my, my, my best career move ever. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, it's, it, it, it's a few day thingy and it can totally change your life. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up. I've been through a number of those things as well. And they are tremendously useful. Um, it may not seem like it at the time, but they pay off in, in spades later on, um, believe me. Well, yeah, they, they, they look like a waste of time when you're sitting there. Right. But right. it's amazing what that does to you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Well, that is, that's extraordinarily useful. Thank you, Ivan. I appreciate that. So um, as we begin to wrap up here, I wonder, um, would you just you know kind of share some of the you know, social online contact information for, re- for listeners who may want to, you know, subscribe to your blog feed or uh, listen to your podcast or anything of that nature? Sure. Blog is, uh, well, everything is at ipspace.net. Okay. Blog at blog.ipspace.net, podcast at podcast.ipspace.net, content at content at dot .ipspace.net. And I still have an old Twitter handle, so I'm at iOS hints. Okay. You haven't updated your Twitter handle yet, huh? Uh, I never took the time to figure out what would happen to people who follow me if I change my handle. I think they go along with you, but that might be uh, might be something that it, it, any listeners out there who are Twitter experts, you, maybe you can get in touch with Yvonne and let him know if he changes his handle, will all his followers go along with him. So there you go. Great. Thanks, Yvonne. I appreciate it. Uh, fabulous information. Um, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. It was and- a real pleasure. Oh, and the pleasure is mine. Believe me. 
Uh, listeners, thank you again so much for tuning in to the Full Stack Journey podcast. We appreciate you taking the time to listen, and I hope that the information shared in today's discussion with Yvonne uh, was helpful. Uh, remember that you can um, get the uh, the podcast from iTunes. You can uh, also see the show notes where I will include links um, to any of the materials that Yvonne mentioned in the show at fullstackjourney.com. Um, and uh, you can also uh, interact with uh, Full Stack Journey via Twitter at FSJ Podcast. That's Full Stack Journey FSJ Podcast. Um, you can also hit me on my personal uh, Twitter handle as at Scott underscore low. And that's it for this episode of the Full Stack Journey. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again soon.